Lord, we come before you to praise your name, to proclaim how beautiful and wonderful and powerful you are, God. That you are God above all, mighty and merciful, Lord, abounding in steadfast love for your people. Lord, we remember this morning all that you have done for us in the sending of your son to be our savior, to provide for us in the things that we didn't even know we needed, Lord, when we were helpless and, 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 and unable to help ourselves, Lord. You, you saw us. You held out your hand to us and you rescued us, Lord. So Father, we, we come before you and we thank you. We praise your name. We reflect on this past week and past months, Lord, and allow us to just take a moment and to remember what you have done, to remember the ways that you have shown up for us, that you have been so present in providing for your people. Let us think and remember for a moment. We thank you, Lord. We thank you most of all that you love us, that you call us yours. In a world that can so easily proclaim identities onto us, Lord, or we can look at ourselves and see all the things that are wrong, that we do imperfectly, Lord, that we struggle with, God. You see all of that and you love us still. You chose us still and you call us your children. And Lord, we are thankful for that love this morning, that that is the identity that you give us, Lord. This morning, as we come together, I continue to uh, just lift this body up to you, Lord, as we have students who are in the midst of their semesters, God, as they are a little over halfway there, Lord, pray that you would provide them strength and endurance, Lord, that you would give teachers all they need to, to get to Christmas break, to have a time of refreshment and rejuvenation, Lord. Allow each of them to be encouraged, Lord. Uh, allow parents to be encouraged as well as they walk through these remaining weeks of the semester, God. Strengthen them and uphold them, Lord. We pray for the different things that we are facing, God. Some of us are facing difficulty in, in jobs or in family relationships or in our own health, Lord. There is very present fear and anxiety and worry in so much of life, God. And we know that you are with us in those things as well. Lord, I pray that as we come together this morning, Lord, as we seek to know you more, to love you more because you have loved us, allow us to see you in our presence, in our midst, as we receive your word, as we stand and worship together, as we join together in fellowship, Lord, allow us to see you here at work, God. Allow us to leave this place encouraged with our hearts drawn closer to you to go out into our everyday lives and proclaim you all the more, to share you with those around us and in front of us, God, that your love and your peace um, would flow through us. God, and overwhelm us. 
Lord, we bring all of these things to you. We thank you again for this time and this space to be together. We pray for Sean this morning as he'll come and share your word with us, Lord. May you give him peace um, and your words to speak. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, as we prepare our hearts to hear the word this morning, as Sean comes to share with us, allow these words from Romans 8 to center your hearts and your minds on the identity that the Lord uh, proclaims for each of us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Well, this time, if you have not yet grabbed your communion cups, we invite you to grab that at the back so that you can partake in that together, and we will invite Sean up to share with us. All right. Well, thank you, Becca. Good morning. Well, my name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you this morning. Um, Today, we return to our studies in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Last week, if you remember, we studied, we looked at the incredible story of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus. And this week, we go to the end of chapter 11 where we see the response to this incredible deed of Jesus. Now, this text today has some interesting links with Luke 16. Luke 16 is is Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Of course, these are two different Lazarus is, Lazari, or however you say that. Um, But in this parable in Luke, Lazarus is a poor man, and he lays at the gate of a rich man longing for crumbs from the rich man's table. Now, after a time, both the rich man and Lazarus die. Lazarus is carried away to be comforted by Abraham. Meanwhile, the rich man calls out for help from hell. When no help comes, he pleads with Abraham to send a messenger to his home to warn his five brothers what the afterlife may hold for them. Abraham gives a stunning answer. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. To which the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham responds, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And isn't that exactly what just happened? Lazarus, the man who had been dead for four days, was called out of the grave by Jesus with just a command. And what we find in our text today is even Lazarus' resurrection will not be enough to convince some people to believe in Jesus. Even 
even the most religious of people. Today we see the ugliness of religion. So let's pray. Well, Lord, will you in your mercy open our hearts and our minds today to receive your word. Speak deeply to us your words of grace and truth through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we'll focus on uh, chapter 11, verses 45 to 53, and we'll leave some time after the sermon to hear from a good friend of mine and hear his story. So I invite you into our text today, John 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, what Jesus had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So here we get the scene setting. The raising of Lazarus, the climactic sign of Jesus' ministry, except for his resurrection, of course. And we see that many people believe because of it. So after much hostility toward Jesus over the last few chapters in John, verse 45 brings great encouragement. But the next verse does not. There are others who go to the Pharisees to tattle on Jesus. Now as we saw back in chapter 9, people tattle on Jesus out of fear. Fear for what the religious authorities might do to them. And that's probably what's happening here. Verse 47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, now the religious heavyweights come together. The council, or Sanhedrin, was the chief court of the Jewish nation. Now, although the Romans limited its power, it was the highest governing body in first century Judaism. This is where religious politics took place. Now, Leon Morris says that since so little is made of the Jewish trial of Jesus in this gospel, that this meeting right here is the real trial of Jesus. It is here where the ultimate decision is made to solve the Jesus problem. Jesus has so exasperated the religious people of the day. And Lazarus is the last straw. They simply haven't been able to silence Jesus. He simply continues to do signs. And if those earlier signs weren't amazing enough, how much more attention will he get from raising a man from the dead? Now notice, these, these religious authorities can't even say Jesus' name. He's just this man. They hate him so much, they can't even utter his name. And the shadow of the cross begins to block out the sunlight. The religious leaders see two significant consequences to doing nothing. First, they genuinely fear that everyone will begin following Jesus. <laughs> 
Although this is an exaggeration, these leaders recognize Jesus' popularity with the people. They might leave them and follow Jesus. They might be the real losers in a mass conversion to Jesus. In other words, they may lose their support. They may lose money. They may lose control. Secondly, the Romans might view Jesus as a rival king to Caesar. And if this happens, the Romans might come and take away their temple and their nation. They can't sit around and do nothing, so in their fear, they must act. And in a few verses, we'll see they render their verdict death for Jesus. Next chapter, it'll be death for Lazarus. Indeed, they are not convinced, even with someone rising from the dead. And we see the ugliness of religion. These religious heavyweights are so caught up in their religion, they miss God right in front of their eyes. They want control. They're fearful of losing control. They need to get rid of Jesus. Religion always seeks to maintain control over life. Religion causes people to put other people into boxes so they can be controlled. Religion even puts God in a box so he can be controlled. And when God doesn't act according to expectations, then they get angry. They want power. Religion always wants power. Religion is focused on me and therefore is always trying to keep Lord Sean in power. These religious authorities don't want to lose their power. They're all about externals. Religion always builds a hard shell around itself in order to maintain power and control. G.K. Chesterton, the famous 20th century preacher, once used the metaphor of crustaceans to refer to people of religion. There you go. Crustaceans have their bones on the outside where you can see them and they can scare you with them. They look mean. They are mean with all of those shells and all those claws, crayfish, lobsters, crabs, even the words sound uninviting. <laughs> you don't want to get close to them. They're ferocious. Religion is to be a crustacean, all about externals. Isn't that a good description of these, uh, these leaders? The bottom line is these religious leaders are all about themselves, not about God. Religion is all about self. Notice how the council says our place. They don't want to lose our place and our nation. Hold it. Isn't it God's place and God's nation? Religion focuses on me, strokes my pride. Lord Sean, 
Religion, as Luther said, is self turned in on itself. Paul will come along in his letters and he'll talk about living according to the flesh. And what Paul means by that is to live with me at the center of life. My identity is rooted in my name or my talents or my achievements. Religion wants to see my name in light. Not God's name, my name. It's egocentric, not God-centric. In Philippians, Paul will share his credentials. He's circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. He's zealous. He's blameless. He has all the right externals, all the right credentials. But then what does he say? It's all rubbish. It's all rubbish compared to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's relationship, not religion. Jesus had just given a dead man life and these fearful religious men decide to kill him because they may lose control. They may lose power. They may lose their squeaky clean image. Know anyone like that? (laughs) I do. (laughs) It's me. I'm turned in on myself a lot. I catch myself saying I, me, mine, a lot. I catch myself focusing on externals, wrapping my identity around performance. I'm a crustacean, (laughs) a lot. And it usually takes a hard crash for me to wake up, for me to reorient my life around my true identity, my true identity, which is that I am a child of God. Relationship not religion. Well, now we hear from Caiaphas. Caiaphas, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Interesting words from Caiaphas. He's the high priest that particular year, that year when Jesus will go to the cross for the sake of the world. Now I also think that John, as he does, is is ironically drawing attention to high priest. The high priest was the shepherd of the people. Recognize those words? shepherd. He was also the atoner for the sins of the people. The high priest was appointed by God to go into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of sacrifice, which he offers for his sins and the sins of the people. Could it be that John points out Caiaphas was high priest that year to draw our attention to who the true high priest 
is. As the book of Hebrews details, that particular year is the year of the transition from the old covenant and the temporary priesthood to the new covenant, the eternal covenant, where Jesus is the eternal high priest. Jesus is our great and eternal high priest who atones for our sins once and for all at the cross. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But Caiaphas, he says some interesting words. It's one of the great sentences in all of Scripture, spoken by Caiaphas. Now, he begins a bit rudely, <laughs> putting down everyone else. You know nothing at all. <laughs> He's a Sadducee, and, and this is known of the Sadducees. They're not very nice. <laughs> uh, they're crustaceans. But the high priest also has the role of making God's will known. And that way, he kind of fun functions as an Old Testament prophet. And what Caiaphas says next can only be described as remarkably prophetic. Verse 50, it is better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. By the way, that word perish, same word as John 3.16. Now on the simple level, Caiaphas intends to save his nation but the deeper meaning, meaning is explained by John, verse 51. John says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. So John helps us grasp the full meaning and irony of Caiaphas' words. Caiaphas actually prophesies about Jesus' sacrificial death. Jesus will substitute himself. He'll exchange himself for the nation of Israel. But not only will Jesus die for the nation of Israel, John points out he will die for all people everywhere. See, sin has, has scattered everyone. But salvation through Jesus' death will gather together all the children of God, both Jew and Gentile. In Jesus' death, he will unite all his followers into one family, the children of God. Now, Jesus himself has already said things like this throughout this gospel. In chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In chapter 10, Jesus said, he's the good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. So Caiaphas is simply repeating what Jesus has already said. It's as if Caiaphas is moving his lips, but Jesus is doing the speaking. 
It's a bit like the story of Joseph in Genesis, isn't it? Joseph's brothers intended evil against him, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Jesus dies a sacrificial death for us that year. Salvation is accomplished that year. Now, John the Baptist had told us way back in chapter one that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This image now comes into focus. Indeed, that text, chapter one, um, and this text, chapter 11, are bookends for the first half of John. We're going to soon enter into the Passion, which is the second half of the book. And so, his sacrificial death bookends the first half of John. And this is the good news, right? Jesus will go to the cross for all people. John wanted to make sure that we understood the cross well before we entered into the passion. So he tells us this up front. In Romans 3, Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how good we are, no matter how religious we are, we've all fallen short of a right relationship with the living God. And the sobering truth is that we are absolutely powerless. We are powerless to make things right. We can't do it. In the Old Testament, the high priest would make atonement for the sins of the people, as we said, through an elaborate, through a constant sacrificial system. But in that particular year, when the old religion comes to an end, God gave his only son out of his great love for us, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life as his children as his children jesus goes to the cross that year he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf jesus the righteous one took upon himself what should have been given to all of us the one takes the place of the many it's the great exchange the great exchange. Jesus takes upon himself our sin and we, we receive his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, there stands another and God looks at the other. God looks upon Jesus who died for us. Do you believe this? For those who do believe, we are children of God whom Jesus has gathered together 
Back in the prologue, John told us to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Bonhoeffer said, Jesus doesn't call us to religion. He calls us to life through an intimate relationship with him. We have a new identity. Over against crustacean identity, we are children of God. Which at least means these things. I can give up control. And I can rest in his control. The pandemic showed us that we're not in control anyway, right? I can give up grasping and fighting for Lord Sean's reputation, Lord Sean's kingdom, and go about fighting for his reputation, promoting his kingdom. I can be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. By the way, I know when I've given up control, it's when I'm praying without ceasing. As a child of God, I turn the center of my life over to Jesus. Lord Sean is gone. Resting in my child identity is to replace me at the center of life and put Lord Jesus there. And that literally gives me a different perspective. He's now at the center of life. I literally walk through life with a different perspective because I'm not there anymore. He is, and my eyes are on him. Religion is what I do. Being a child of God recognizes what God has already done in Jesus. And that keeps me humble. And that fills me with thanksgiving. Gratitude fills my heart. As a child of God, I cultivate dependence on the Spirit over against the flesh. As Paul says, children of God live by the Spirit who is in me and for me and works on me. As a child of God, then, my job is to be attentive to him. Surrender to his leading. Especially to his lead in crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And lastly, as a child of God, I belong to a family. I belong to a family of love whom Jesus has gathered together. We are one family. So I would encourage you to enter into our family. Our family here at PVCC, enter in and engage and put roots down here as a child of God. So what is a Christian? Not a crustacean. The richest answer is... A child of God. As J.I. Packer said, to be a child of the living God is like a fairy tale. Only it's true. (laughs) It's true. Amen and amen. Now receive this benediction from Galatians. And this is from the message. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his children. 
because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives crying out, Papa, Father. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain you are no longer a slave, but a child? Go live in that identity this week. Amen.